brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Sofrep.com, on time, on target. I'm Ian Scotto, Jack Murphy, and here with us is, I was actually making sure I'm saying the name right, Paul Sharay or Shari? Shari. Shari, that's what you were saying before, Jack. Just get closer to the, to the mic. Yeah. yeah, you can move it. You can All right. adjust the mic. All right, good. Okay. Um, yeah, we're excited to have you on. So, so Paul is a former team leader in the Army 3rd Ranger Battalion, teammate of Jack, of how many years? Oh, we worked together for a while. Uh, we deployed yeah, we're... together to Afghanistan. Uh, Paul was on the recce team, and I was in the sniper section at the time. And, and you and you were yourself were a graduate of sniper school. Yeah, so I was in the sniper detachment in Third Bat um, for a while, and then when we created a recce team, we sort of poached some of the snipers, and I ended up standing up uh, one of the recce teams there. Yeah, same time as Tim and Jack, we did a deployment together. Very cool. So Paul is also the author of Army of None, Autonomous Weapons, and the Future of War, which I actually should have on this table, I realize. Yeah. So I'm going to do that so that people can see the cover of this but yeah so he's the author of uh army of none came out last week came yeah, out one week do ago. some product placement let's and see uh, yeah let's get actually <laughs> we probably put it up here somewhere it's funny because paul was asking before about like what are we going to talk about on the script as you see we're the least scripted thing ever <laughs> yeah, I didn't even well scripted show put the uh book on the table there you go. move those headphones there How's that? Okay. yeah no it's mine that are in the way actually there you go and just so. to finish off who paul is paul is currently the senior fellow and a director of the tech of uh the technology and national security program at the center for a new american security so excited to have you on man yeah thanks for having me absolutely yeah it's awesome i was thinking about it uh this morning like i haven't seen paul in like 12 years the last time we saw each other we ran in it was like a salsalitas or something yeah. in fayetteville north carolina <laughs> and i i we had both left ranger battalion i was going through the q course and Paul, you you had been stop lost, right? Yeah, so so I was recalled. You know, I'd gotten out and then recalled through the IRR when they were doing that. A um, little bit less high speed than the Q course. I was sent through like a shake and bake civil affairs training with a bunch of reservists. It was, I mean, to be honest, it was it was a bit of a kind of circus. And uh, and yeah, I was down in Fort Bragg too, ready to deploy when I ran into you there. But then that, that was the last time I saw you. That was yeah, like twelve years ago. Yeah, time, time flies, flies, man. Time flies. It really does. And, uh, and now you've written a book. Got a book out. Yep. So what's your book about? All right. So, so the book is basically about military robotics and where we're seeing the technology evolve going forward. So we've got a situation today where uh, at least 90 countries have drones today already. And, you know, many non-state groups, Islamic State and others, Hamas, Hezbollah have got drones. There's at least 16 countries that have armed drones. That's what we track in the book. We got a map of them. Uh, we got a map where they're coming from. Most of them are coming internationally from China. They're the major proliferator of armed drones. And then, of course, non-state groups like ISIS as well have got, you know, 
hobbyist drones that cobble together, put some explosives on them. Um, the number keeps going up, though. With each generation, we're seeing more automation and more autonomy in these things. So just like in automobiles, as you know, if you go buy a top-of-the-line automobile today, it's got self-parking, yeah. intelligent cruise control, it's got automatic lane-keeping. Each generation of military robotics has more autonomy. The question the book grapples with is what happens when a Predator drone has as much autonomy as a self-driving car? Where's this going? Um, And particularly when we're talking about life and death decisions. Uh, The book's all about this idea of handing over targeting decisions to the machine itself. Well, obviously, there are lots of domains in warfare. We have a lot of automation today. Um, We've got, you know, torpedoes and and air-to-air missiles and other things that, you know, once you let it go... A lot of these things are fire and forget weapons. You're not getting it back. There's a lot of automation involved, a lot of technology. But humans are still in control of these decisions. Someone is still saying, yup, there's an enemy ship. I want to attack it. Um, What happens when that changes? And then technology is definitely taking us there. It's going to make it possible to delegate those decisions to machines. And so the book kind of talks about first half about the technology. What are people building? And the second half about kind of what are the implications of this? You know, what if, what if we start to cross this line? How do we feel about deferring responsibility for killing to a machine? That's right. So it talks about the law, the ethics, the strategic issues, stability. One of the things it grapples with is, um, is you know, what happens when you have these bots interacting and maybe in unexpected ways? So we've seen this in stock trading. Uh, we've, we've now in a domain of stock trading where it's largely automated. Um, most trades today are done by bots, and a lot of these are happening in milliseconds at time speeds where humans can't possibly react. So we've seen this arms race in speed in stock trading. Well, one of the effects of this is you get things like flash crashes. You get these unexpected interactions, and uh, all the bots start to interact, or people manipulate the bots. They spoof them in ways to take advantage of their behavior, and then you get these, these sort of crazy effects that happen, these crises, these, these events. Well, in stock trading they've been able to mitigate this problem by installing circuit breakers that take the stock offline if the price moves too quickly. But what happens if that happens in war? Like, there's no referee to call timeout. Uh, things aren't going well. So, you know, what happens if you get a flash war? Especially since, system? like, 2008. I mean, the SEC, I think, and some others, there, there have been federal regulators that actually oversee algorithms and things like that as far as, like, banking algorithms. That's right. And so the regulators have stepped in. You know, the, the, the stock exchanges themselves install these circuit breakers because they don't want to have these events. But there's no equivalent. In, there's no referee in warfare. Right. I, I think one of the big differences we've seen um, since, you know, you and I were in the military to today is when I talk to people who are, you know, working on the front lines, they talk about uh, someone in Ukraine telling me about how there is a drone, how the, the Russian separatists had a drone up uh, with thermals on it looking for them. Oh, yeah. and like that's something when we were in the military, the Taliban or Al Qaeda, whoever we were up against, they didn't really have any night vision capability. They definitely didn't really have any thermal capability. That's changed. And then ISIS in Iraq, they were flying drones and dropping hand grenades down on yep. troops. Yeah, that was something we didn't have to grapple with. No, I actually have a buddy in, uh, in like 2005 time frame. He shot down a drone in Iraq, and he was all pleased. He just he saw it overhead. And he you know lifted up his M4 and shot at that. And he's like, oh, I got one. I was like, dude, you know that was ours, right? Like they don't have them. Like good job. <laughs> um, but that's changed now. That is changed. And and so now you've got the threat coming from above, and you've got this world where the technology is so proliferated. Because the stuff's out there in the commercial market. You can go buy a drone online for a couple yeah. hundred bucks, right? It's very automated. There's a lot of autonomy. You get a pretty high-quality one for 500 or so. Very high-quality, yeah. right? And, uh, and in some ways, this blows my mind. 
you can buy a cheap drone online that has more autonomy than an Air Force Reaper drone. So, so you can buy things that have automated takeoff and landing. They can do um, um, obstacle avoidance. They can navigate around trees. They can do things like track and follow moving objects. That's more than we have in military grade, like large aircraft. Now, a Reaper is bigger. It's got bigger range. It carries more payload. It's got bombs on it. But the autonomy, is, is, it's just software, and it's so diffuse that anybody's going to have access to this kind of technology. Is that because the military has like an ethical holdup on granting autonomy to these drones? Yeah, it's because the acquisition system is so it's slow. It's so broken. We yeah. can't do I mean, I mean, that's not fair. Part of it's that, right? But part of it is a cultural resistance to giving up control to robots of jobs people like. So, I mean, the elements of autonomy that, that, that we could be instituting today... Some of these are non-controversial at all. Um, automated takeoff and landing. Those are things that we totally should be doing. But until you talk to pilots, and pilots are like, well, that's my job, right? My yeah. job is to fly the aircraft. And they don't want to give up control. It's like a taxi cab things. driver getting mad at Uber or something. Exactly, like that. right? It's, and I see this across the force. So you've got um, in, in the Army, the Army medical community has actively resisted casualty evacuation with robotic vehicles. Why? Because it's their job to go into harm's way to do medevac. And so they're like, well, we don't, we don't agree with that. We think that's wrong. In the Marine Corps, they're all about it. They don't have a Because they don't have that many people, and they have naval corpsmen. Exactly. They don't have a dedicated medevac community the way the Army does. So it's a lot of times, like, when, when the robot's taking away somebody's job, then you get a lot of resistance. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I don't know, it's interesting. And you also get into the book a lot about artificial intelligence. And, and I mean... If we're ever going to hand autonomy over to the drone, then obviously AI goes hand in hand with that, right? Yeah, so we've seen amazing advances in the past couple of years in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we're able to do things that like five years ago would have just been impossible. One of the things that's, that's pretty remarkable and that's really directly applicable to this is object recognition. So 10 years ago, if we were having this conversation, I would have said things like, look, a computer can't tell the difference between an apple and a tomato, hmm. which was true at the time. Yeah. And one of the problems was that um, old school AI, a lot of it was rule-based. So you have a set of rules for behavior. So if you're trying to program a set of rules for television between apple and tomato, well, what, what rule set would you give to somebody who's never seen it before? Right? They're both round, they're both shiny, they're red, you got a little green stem on top. If you see them, they look obviously different. Like a toddler knows the difference between them. But it's hard to come up with a set of rules. So now in the past couple of years, we've seen this explosion in machine learning driven in large part by huge data sets. And actually, a lot of it comes out of graphical process units, GPUs from gaming. Well, isn't it, isn't it people training the AI? So, so that, that's, a, that's one way to do it, is people train the AI. But we've also been able to create systems to train themselves. So the latest version of um, uh, Google DeepMind's AlphaGo that is playing the, the Chinese strategy game Go, right. right, taught itself entirely to play on its own. And they had a version of this that played chess and in four hours, four hours of self-play, it reached superhuman performance levels. So four hours, it taught, all it has the access to the board and the rules of the game, it eclipses all of millennia of human knowledge in chess. So this is the, uh, the Skynet thesis that you flip the switch and it automatically comes to the determination that mankind must be extinguished. It's a little creepy, right? It's a little <laughs> yeah. bit creepy. Yep. Um, and one of the challenges in the technology is that, is that it's very powerful, but it's also very brittle. And so you can build these systems and they do really, really well at something that they were trained to do. But then if you change the environment a little bit or change the context, sometimes the performance could just fall apart. 
So for example, um, this, this Go playing program, AlphaGo, one of the earliest versions of this, it beat the top human in the world. But if you change the size of the board slightly, its performance would drop off dramatically because it's not how it was trained. It was only right, trained on a right. certain size board. That's not a problem for humans. So humans are very flexible and adaptable. But the machines that we're building today, they don't know how to do that very well. And that's a big limitation when we think about using them. How are we going to improve AI you know, over time? What do you think it's going to continue like this or... I mean, even if, so I think like how the technology evolves going forward is wide open. I mean, you hear such a huge um, array of speculation. But even if all basic research progress in AI just stopped tomorrow, which I don't think is likely, um, you could get so much mileage for decades out of just taking the things that already exist and applying them in different settings. Mm -hmm. So if you took object recognition, which now we can do using machine learning better than humans. So yeah, 10 years ago, Apple versus Mano was hard. Now, we've already had machines that can beat humans at benchmark tests of identifying objects. So they could look in this room and they could identify our faces, they could identify all the objects, this is a, you know, this is a glass of water, this is a book, sure. this is a pen. Um, and so you think about applying that to warfare, could we have some smart sensor on some robot that can tell whether someone's holding you know, a rifle or a rake? Yeah, we could totally do that. And we could probably do that better than humans, actually, because you could um, do it in different kind of conditions, different lighting. You could fuse together different sensors. You got thermals and LiDAR and other things. There's a lot of potential there. So from, a, a, I guess, like a cultural standpoint or a policy standpoint at the Pentagon, like how far away, how far off do you think we are before we defer that responsibility to robots, essentially? So what, what Pentagon leaders have said so far is that they plan to still keep humans in the loop. So they're going to build ever more advanced robotic systems. They're working on that. Um, they're building, you know, air and ground and land robotic vehicles and, and undersea as well. Um, but they're still going to have people kind of making that decision. What they've said so far is that they plan to keep people in charge, but we'll see what others do. And that's kind of where the Pentagon leaders have been is like, look, yeah. if Russia or China take people out of the loop and, you know, that's faster and that's better, we may have to respond in kind. And well, that's the, I was going to bring that up. I mean, the Chinese do not seem to have the same ethical considerations. And, you know, we do a lot of hand wringing here in the Western world about uh, human rights, human ethics, uh, you know, genetics testing, right. cloning, right. human experimentation. What's right? What's wrong? It doesn't seem like some foreign countries are quite as concerned with uh, some of these notions as we are. I think we talked about that like last show. Did yeah. we? Yeah, yeah it's very true. I mean, it's certainly true that, like, you know, the competitors that we really care about, they don't see these ethical things in the same light. Um, the Russians have talked about trying to build a fully roboticized unit someday that's conducting independent operations. Um, the Chinese statements on this issue of autonomous weapons have been much murkier and kind of confusing, but it's pretty clear that they don't see these ethical things the same way. What they do care about is they do care about control. They care about control over their own weapons, and particularly in, in Chinese culture and the Chinese authoritarian system, they don't want people freelancing things. I think there's a lot of speculation about what that means for automation. I've heard some people say, well, they're going to automate things because they don't want their people to be in charge. Yeah, the, the, the sense Maybe. of autonomy is contradictory to the communist system. Totally, right? They don't want anyone to have autonomy. It, all these decisions should go right up to the senior leadership. So I think TBD and how they actually implement it, but if, if they hold back, it's not for ethical reasons. It's about authoritarian control. Right. That's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Yeah. 
And we, you know, we, uh, a colleague of mine, um, Elsa Kanya, at, at the Center for New American Security, published a great report last year on Chinese military views and artificial intelligence, doing a bunch of research looking at, um, at actual Chinese, like, original language documents yes. and what they're doing. Uh, her report uh, is called Battlefield Singularities. Great. And some Chinese scholars have used that term. They've talked about evolving some point in time where the pace of action on a battlefield eclipses the speed of human reaction time. And so you reach this battlefield singularity where everything's automated. But what we see is when we look at the Chinese documents, there's a lot of their actual concepts. There's a lot of mirroring. There's a lot of them reading U.S. stuff. Yes. And then they're like, oh, that's a good idea. And they're doing it, maybe with a twist, but they're doing it. They're doing similar things. You know, their doctrine is to take Western technology but strip Western values out of it and use it you know, to, to further, you know, the Chinese government's agenda. Right, right. It's not, it's not as um, original as, as you might think. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also questions about, you know, when you have a society like that, that learns by rote and that doesn't value autonomy, how original are they going to be able to get on their own? I mean, I think there's no question that in my mind, you know, one of the longstanding advantages in the American military has been um, the freedom um, that we give uh, junior officers and NCOs and sort of mission-level command. Um, I remember being in basic training, and this, this captain comes in and says, uh, do you know why we won World War II? You know? And it's like, you know, well, we had, we had more people and more tanks. And really, and frankly, 70% of Georgian casualties happened on the Eastern Front, so the Soviets did a lot of the heavy lifting here. But he's like, the one thing we won, it was because of the sand table. <laughs> Right? <laughs> I was like, what the sand table? <laughs> so his argument was, which seems a little bit stretched, but you know, you got the sand table that, that if people aren't familiar, you know, they, they lay this table out, they brief everybody on the mission. They can see the terrain map of the mission with the little colored pieces of yarn that people do in ranger school. The little green stuff. army men. Yeah. The little green army men, and right, we're going to march up this hill here. But the idea was it's this visual way to brief for everybody in the unit what the plan is. And so if all the leadership gets wiped out, you can have situations where there's like one guy left and he's some private and he can carry out the mission. And there were instances where things like that happened, like point to a hawk, you get basically like 90% of the unit wiped out. And so um, that's something that is, I think, you know, a major advantage in the United States is yeah. that we have really educated people. We give them a lot of autonomy. And, and um, it's very clear that while AI is powerful, it can't do what humans do. And so, you know, a military that, like, still uses AI but retains humans involved in these tactical decisions is, I think, going to be optimally suited to winning the battlefield. Well, what are some of the, uh, I guess, upcoming technologies that you're excited about seeing how they develop uh, one way or the other? Yeah. Um, what, some of the things we, we walk through, I kind of walk through in the book, are um, different robotic vehicles, different missiles. One, you know, we tend to think sometimes about... Um, if you think about autonomous weapons or military robots, you're envisioning like a, a, a vehicle or an aircraft or a robot. A lot of things that are happening that are pretty amazing are just in better, smarter missiles. So physically, the system might look exactly the same. It looks like a right. cruise missile. But all the brains inside it are getting smarter. They're able to... Um, uh, we got a missile today, the long-range anti-ship missile, the LRASM, that can autonomously do um, change its route on its way to its target. So if it's moving to the ship that it's targeted at... And then there's like a, what it calls a pop-up threat on the way. It can reroute around all that. We're also seeing swarming missiles that can like talk to each other. I think it's tremendous advantages in swarming combat. Um, I opened the book with a, with a scene out at the Naval Postgraduate School yeah. where they're doing swarm research. And they've got um, 10 versus 10 aerial dogfight of swarms. 
and they're trying to like figure out what's the tactic to fight swarm versus swarm because nobody's ever done that before. How do you do that if you got these autonomous? You're saying watching it, you have no idea what's going on. Really, you can't tell who's fighting who or. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty remarkable, and it's all fast, so, so it's all automated. In, in that scene, you know, the human, all the human does is push the button and say, go. And then the swarms are all fighting each other, and, um, and they actually do physical experiments using these sort of, these really cheap um, drones that they built, these styrofoam drones, but they're totally autonomous, and they've got them up in the air dogfighting each other, and it's just this, like, furball of, like, aerial combat, and they're just swirling around each other. And you see on the computer screen, they're just like racking up kills against each other. But that that guy pressing the go button, I mean, that is, that's the human involvement. That's and, all. It is. And that's what we're gonna do. That, is that what we're how we're gonna bless off on this and say, oh, it's okay, a human is in the mix because our machines come back to us and say, hey, Jack, is it okay if I nuke that target? And, and I like look at it for like five seconds, like a, a digital readout. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Looks good. I mean, that's that's one of the things that the book tries to grapple with. So so. You've got um, one vision is you've got something like you described where the human, the machine's making all of these recommendations and the human is the final approval authority. Um, and there's a lot of appeal to that. You get a lot of the advantages of automation, but the human still ultimately has the final decision making. One of the things we've seen, though, is that sometimes isn't enough if the human surrenders their judgment to the machine. So this is a fact called automation bias. We right. just trust the automation. And you see things like accidents with these Tesla cars. Now, two, two fatalities. Where people are trusting the automation more than they should. Um, it's a common problem that happens. There were two incidents in 2003 during the Iraq invasion where the uh, Army's Patriot air defense system shot down two friendly aircraft, uh, shot down a, a, a British Tornado and a Navy F-18, and, and killed the pilots in both instances. And humans were in the loop. Humans pushed the buttons on those things. But um, afterwards, when the investigators looked at this, they talked to the, the operators in the community, and what they said was that their view was that if they overruled the automation and someone was killed, they would be in more trouble yeah. than if they just like let it go through and something bad happened. Because it's like you ignored your equipment. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So you would, it wasn't just the technology. We created a whole culture of automation bias. Well, it's that famous case of the, uh, it was a Soviet radar operator, right? Who it was like 1982 or something like yeah. that. Yeah, so I opened the book with this story about Stanislav Petrov. Yeah. He's, a, he's this Soviet colonel. He's sitting in a bunker outside Moscow in 83, and, um, and, and you know, his job is he's, like, at the night watch on these, these missile warning systems, you know, high to the Cold War, waiting to see if the, the Americans are going to launch a surprise nuclear attack. And the system goes off. <laughs> missile launch. Says a U.S. just launched a nuclear ICBM at the Soviet Union. So he's like, well, what's that about? And then, bang, bang, bang. Four more launches. So the system says we got five missiles inbound. I remember hearing about this. Yeah, yeah. and it's and it's flashing these warnings, missile launch. And the missiles, uh, like the time on to time on target is like twenty minutes or yeah, something. Yeah, he's only right? got a few minutes to yeah. make a decision. So if 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 he if Soviet leadership's going to be able to respond, you know, he's got to make a phone call really quick and say like, hey, these missiles are coming because he's got to pass this up the chain because they got to get their version of a nuclear suitcase and they got to they got to make a decision. Or the fear is the U.S. might be launching a decapitating strike to take out the Soviet leadership. Right. So but he also knows that there's a new system they just deployed and it's a little bit kind of janky. It's a little bit. Well, maybe it's just it's just on the fritz. Now, he says later that he thought it was like 50 50. It's a coin flip, whether this is real or not. But the system is blaring. It's got a big flashing red light like missiles are inbound. Um, at a certain point in time, they should be expecting to see the missiles coming over the horizon on the Soviet early warning radars. And he calls the radar operators and they're like, yeah, we don't see anything. 
So he makes just a gut call. He's like, I don't think this makes sense. Why would the Americans only launch five missiles? And he didn't trust his system. He didn't trust it. He didn't trust it. And he had outside of the system removed from that as a human being. He had that like political awareness that That's like right. this doesn't really make sense. That's right. So he brings to bear this context where he thinks, like, why would the Americans launch only five missiles? Like if you were going to launch a first strike, you'd launch them all. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so he, he makes a gut check. He says, systems malfunction. And uh, obviously he was right. Uh, and so he you know, saved us all from potentially <laughs> nuclear war. But it raises this question of like, what would a machine have done? By the way, James Powell talked about that on a recent show because he, he just died recently, that guy. Petrov, yeah, he died, yeah. died very recently. Um, and, and so, you know, what would a machine have done? Whatever we programmed it to do. Yeah, a machine would have launched the nukes. Right? If we told it. Yeah. Like, and that's what the machine was. The machine was saying it's an actual, you know, launch. Um, so that's something that we probably don't want to give up is this ability for people to kind of see the bigger picture. So this is like a little bit of a more far out there question beyond the scope of your book, I think. But I want to get into these uh, conceptual ideas because I think they're interesting. Um, I, I notice how in science fiction, you know, in the, um, Isaac Asimov, all, all the movies that you and I grew up watching, a lot of it is about the human relationship with our machines, you know, yes. like... Um, like uh, Hal in 2001, uh, movies like this, films like this, where it's the, uh, us interacting with our robots, with our artificial intelligences. Um, but I notice now when I watch movies, I watch um, like the new Blade Runner film, mm-hmm. 2040, or Alien Covenant, watch these types of films. And what they're actually about is the relationship between our AIs. And humans mm. are no longer the protagonists. We're like in the background, and it's about our robots talking to each other yeah, yeah. and how they feel about each other and what they think about each other. What do you make of that? Where do you, I mean, it seems like, uh, like subconsciously we have come to this conclusion already, like this is going to happen, and our, our relationship with our robots is passe now. Okay, now it's really about the relationship between the robots. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I I like when I see it in science fiction is this idea of machine intelligence as different than humans. Um, And I think you see this more and more in in things. I think Ex Machina does this very well, actually. Yeah, that's a good movie. Of not not envisioning AI as replacing us or being human-like, but it is, is envisioning it as something that might look like humans, might talk like us, but it thinks fundamentally different from us. Well, but and in, that's actually what we're seeing in, in, in a lot of the technology. In, in Ex Machina, what I thought was interesting about that movie was that they develop an AI, um, and we have these thoughts about what AI is and isn't, yeah. but at the end of the day, the AI in that film had a very human desire for basic freedom and acted on that. That's true. Well, that's true. So, I mean, I think... What's fascinating to me when I look at the, at the actual technology we're building is that the goal is sort of like we don't really understand intelligence. We don't really know how the human brain works. We don't understand what human yeah. intelligence is. We have one data point for what we think intelligence is, which is the human mind. And so what, what people have actually been doing in the field of AI is they take hard problems, things that seem to us like things that require intelligence. I'm playing chess. We would say among humans, like, oh. Crunching numbers. Crunching numbers, yeah. right? We'd say, well, that's hard for humans to do. You know, if you're a chess grandmaster, you're a smart person. Let's see. And, and the, decades ago, the view was if we could build a machine that could beat humans at chess, we would have solved AI. Then it turns out to be not that hard because the, one of the things we keep finding is that things that are easy for humans are really hard for machines, and things that are hard for machines are actually kind of easy for, for people to do. Um, 
you know, going into a, a house and making a pot of coffee or folding laundry is like really hard for machines. This is great videos online of like machines trying to like robot trying to fold laundry and it's just like a t-shirt's just killing them. Um, so, so the, the, to me, the lesson is that as we're building these systems, they don't think like us. They're very different, and a lot of the models that we have for thinking about intelligence. Um, don't don't work well. We tend to anthropomorphize the machines, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of risks in that, actually. Yeah, we think the the, the machine is going to have human desires, or we just. So what happens sometimes is, you know, we'll see that it's better than humans at one thing, and then we extrapolate that to everything else, um, and then we're surprised when the machine falls apart all of a sudden. So we might get into a self-driving car, and you're like, oh, the car drives better than humans. In some settings, yes, it may. And then there might be another setting where it just goes incredibly dumb all of a sudden and it just falls apart and we're not prepared for that because, because the machine sort of thinks differently than us. I, I think this stuff is endlessly interesting. I mean, how do you see the future of the, the human-machine interface then? Is it like uh, working in tandem, like the way humans worked with domesticated animals thousands of years ago? Or, I mean, how is that going to shake out? Yeah, um, the, the vision that is that sort of a lot of people in the defense community have migrated towards in the past couple of years is one of a centaur model. So like the old mythical creature of you know half half horse half human. This sort of this idea of a centaur warfighter that's humans and machines working together. Um, what that looks like, I think, is going to keep evolving over time. But the idea being that you you incorporate lots of automation, lots of machine cognition, using the machines where it's good and the humans where it's good, blending these kind of things together. Um, I would compare it to, you know, we are in an era of warfare already where humans work closely with mechanical machines. Um, it's a little bit different, like on the ground, um, you know, where we were at or, or people in the soft community where you know, you're running around on your own two legs. But in other domains of warfare, you know, at an air or at sea or undersea, you cannot fight without the machine. You can't right. fight in the air without the machine or underwater. It's not possible. Um, and so we have very close human machine integration, but they're like physical mechanical objects. Um, Even for the you know soldier on the ground, I mean the the, the M4 rifle, the Humvee. I mean these yep. are all machines that have to work in tandem with human beings. That's right, right? Like your your integration with your with your rifle is really intimate. You got to know how to use it, how to be effective, how to clear stoppages, things like that. Um, and and I think we're going to continue seeing that, but it's going to begin to happen at the cognitive level. So instead of just like physical machines, it's machines that are making decisions, that are sensing the environment, that are making recommendations to people. They might be still doing some things automatically. There might be some automated responses. Um, talking about like reality plus, it's been called, having some sort of heads-up display. Might, like be, might be heads-up display. Um, there's some incredible research that just came out um, where people are using AI systems to basically put um, EEG sensors on your head and read brain waves and then actually like do crude interpretations of what people are thinking. So you can imagine integrating that into systems where um, you can like have machines that react at the speed of thought. So instead of me having to like push a button to fire a missile or do something, the machine reads my thoughts and like automatically responds. Automatically. When you hear this type of thing, it really does become hard to decipher between like what really is going on and what is conspiracy 
nut job stuff because yeah. Yeah. Th- some of this sounds like borderline what Alex Jones talks about <laughs> with like MK Ultra stuff. And then you think like what's real and what's not because the technology is advancing so fast before our eyes. It is. It's remarkable. And so I work in this space and I run this technology program at, at the Center for New American Security. And I'm continually amazed by how fast things are moving. I will often be in situations where I'll think to myself like, I'll bet in the next 12 months we'll see X, right? We'll see a a drone that can fully autonomously map a building or something, or it could do obstacle avoidance on its own. And then I'll be like, let me just look online. And I'll Google it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you could buy that for a couple hundred bucks. It's on the market. Wow. It happened last month. Uh-uh. And it blows me. And I, and I keep being surprised by this. Well, I think people who are our age, and we're probably the last generation, really, like we grew up in the analog era. We still yeah. had cassette yeah. tapes and things like that. And then we grew up. Yeah, records. The internet came around, and, and things went digital. Um, I think like our kids, they everything's always been digital for them. I, I, do you think that upcoming generations will have the same hesitation that maybe you and I might have of not trusting the machine? You know, the Soviet radar operator that's like, I, I don't know about this, you know. I don't know. I think, I mean, we're going to have to develop new intuitions um, yeah. for these kind of machines and how they think. Um, one of the things that's 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 different is they have different kinds of failure modes. Um, so for example, these machine learning systems that do object classification, that do it better than humans, they're very, very good, but they, they're vulnerable to a form of spoofing attack where they can be fed manipulated images that can trick the machine into believing something with a high degree of confidence. And so for example, um, a group of researchers made a 3D printed turtle. So it looks like a little, little plastic turtle, right? To a human, we would all agree that's a turtle object. They've embedded little tiny swirl images that are very tailored in the shell of the turtle that when a machine looks at this, it says it's a rifle. <laughs> We're like 99% confidence. So that's a place where it's a weird and counterintuitive to many people that that's a, that's a, that's a thing. I do think over time we'll begin to be develop better intuition for those failure modes. Just like people have good intuition today for like mechanical objects. You get a good intuitive feel for a Humvee or a tank or something else. Um, we're going to develop those for these cognitive machines. But it seems that one of the big problems and something that's been talked about a lot lately is the the notion of uncertainty and how much uncertainty there is on the battlefield today. Yes. And if you receive feedback from the sensors on your machine, how do you know they're authentic? Um, it, it, when your machine, when you're telling the machine, when you're pressing the button, telling the machine to do something, how does the machine know that he's really getting that from you? Uh, how do you think they're going to grapple with these questions when we, we operate in such an uncertain battle space where we have adversaries who are manipulating the electronic environment? So, so I think you have like these two um, uh, pressures for and against automation in warfare that kind of run counter to each other. So one is an advantage in speed. Speed, you know, Sun Tzu writes, speed kills. Like, speed is a huge advantage in war. Speed is the essence of war, is what Sun Tzu says. So speed is it's a huge advantage. Automation is very good at quick reaction times. So if we can react faster, those are places where you might want to use automation. The flip side of that is that war is chaotic. It's confusing. It's unpredictable. You've got an adversary that's trying to do creative things. Machines are terrible at that, situ- that situation, that kind of environment. And we can do automation very well in places where we can test it. You could take cars out on the road. You could drive cars on the road every single day and do millions of miles. And then you can build up. You can increase reliability. In warfare, you never actually get to do that. You can train all you want, and then you get to war, and it's always going to be different. You're not going to get to go practice against the enemy for 30 years before the war starts. So, so that's where you know, we tell humans things like training is just a foundation for what you're going to have to do. 
We expect people don't go into war and just, you know, slavishly follow the, 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 the training that you were given. Um, you're going to have to adjust your tactics. You have to be creative. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. Machines can't do that kind of adaptability. And so I think that the, the challenge is trying to figure out ways to integrate both humans and machines effectively, the centaur model. And my suspicion is that the military that gets that right, that figures out how to blend those together, will have tremendous advantages in future wars. I'm a little skeptical about us, uh, at least from my perspective, on um, looking at the infantry. You remember the Land Warrior program? It's been around since yeah. about the 1990s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's been like three iterations of it. I mean, so you've got a confluence of problems. There. One is the Army has not had a successful modernization program since the striker. Um, the Army has huge modernization challenges as a whole. Um, it feeds into broader DoD problems, which is the, the, the Pentagon gets fixated by all this next-gen technology. The gee whiz. Well, yeah. I right? remember you telling me this is like 2005 saying something like, we don't need all this high-tech stuff. We just need better rucksacks, better boots. It's true, right? Like, at the <laughs> yeah. time, like, like uh, let's just give infantry guys better boots. Now, eventually, we did get better boots. But, um, but you know, people, I think, especially people in ground combat, or it's messy and it's dirty and things are going to jam and things are going to break, want reliability and robustness. They don't want all this fancy gadget. Yeah, wires um, and shit coming out of it. Yeah. That's right. And, and but, but it's also compounds with the fact that for the infantry soldier... All this stuff adds weight. And, and I think the fundamental difference between what we've seen in infantry combat versus other areas of combat... Like being a fighter pilot or right, whatever, yeah. Is that, is that you're limited by what you can carry in weight. So you go back to World War II, the three most dangerous jobs in the military were infantry, bombers, and submarines. Now, we've been able to leverage modern technology to build very advanced, survivable stealth bombers and submarines. Being in infantry is as dangerous as it's ever been. That's, that's where the bulk of the casualties are happening for combat forces. Um, so, so why is that? I think part of the problem is you just everything you give somebody, they got to carry that stuff. And people are loaded down with yeah. guns. They're already way overloaded. Way overloaded, yeah. right? And then you lose mobility. So we have, we have a project underway at uh, the Center for New American Security called Super Soldiers. Well, we did actually pro a project for the Army, for the Army Research Laboratory, looking at emerging technologies to try to solve this problem. Well, the army has these ideas about like giving soldiers an exoskeleton. Yeah. Lockheed Martin has like the fucking, you know, six wheeled mechanical horse that's going to yes. carry your yes. rucksacks. And I mean, there's a, there's a, have you ever read that book? It's, it's an actual a mandatory reading at West Point. I think it's called A Soldier's Load. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And it, load. and it breaks down yep. how much weight our soldiers should be carrying. Everybody has to read it. And then they blow it off. We totally blow it off, right? And so one of the things we walked through in our, in our report um, that's coming out, part of the Super Soldier series this summer, is, is all of these, there's been all these studies over time of soldiers loaded, both the Army and Marine Corps, and they all settle for about 50 pounds. It's kind of like the right load. Oh, yeah, combat load. Combat yeah. load, right? What do we actually load people up with? Everybody knows, but we care a hell of a lot more than 50 pounds. But so, so there are some technology things. You know, the giant Iron Man suit, it's not around the corner. I mean, it's going to require some more research. We do look at exoskeletons and exosuits, which is like a soft version of that that kind of helps. It's like, it's like um, artificial muscles and tendon for mobility. It's a little bit more near-term than an exoskeleton. But um, we also talk about, like, policy changes. Like, what if you allowed people, commanders, you delegated authority to lower-level commanders to change um, PPE and body armor? So yeah. if you're like a company commander up in the mountains of Afghanistan, you could be like, hey, we're not wearing plates this time, right? Everything, we say everything is Met-T dependent. 
And then in practice, we don't give authority to people to actually adapt the equipment. There's all these policy letters that dictate what commanders can do. We don't give people freedom like that. So I I think that's a huge mistake. Um, I also think one of the things we recommend is we set a weight limit on individual equipment. So the Army should establish for personal gear a weight limit, and then every time they want to add a pound of something, something's got to come away. And they actually don't have that right now. Um, they, they, they pay attention to weight, but they don't have like a number in place. So there are some things we could do today. I think, uh, I think my last deployment, I was wearing like 90 pounds of gear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been, you know, people, um, there's been a lot of studies they've done that show like your average infantry units carrying, you know, when you add in a rucksack, right? Yeah. And I wasn't carrying, carrying a ruck. I wasn't even that. No. Yeah. You're, you're carrying 80 to like 110 pounds, depending on your duty position, you know, whether you're mortars or like a machine gun team. I remember one mission. We did this one time with, and you remember some of the guys in the sniper sections. You can imagine how we would do this, right? We carried, a, I swear to God, 160 pounds up a mountain in Afghanistan. <laughs> now, we only did that once. And we were like, this, Gotta is, go. this is dumb, right? <laughs> and we got, needless to say, we had so poor mobility that we couldn't get to the heights that we were trying to get to. Sun comes up. We got to hunker down where we were. We get compromised right out the gate. You know, as soon as the sun comes up, people found us. And we ended up getting into a firefight and had to exfil. And, um, and the, next, the next day, we were like, Every, everything's coming out, right? Everything's coming out of the rucksack. And we went, we went real light and fast. Um, but, you know, we have this culture. Part of it's policy stuff. Part of it's just like, we're hard, right? Like carry more weight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've read a lot of books, um, about, you know, the, uh, Rhodesian and the South African units that made like some really long-term infiltrations. And, uh, yeah, every time they, you know, especially the long range reconnaissance guys going out with 150 pounds, it's not possible. Like you, you can't operate like that. And the more effective operations are where the guys are carrying 30 pounds of gear. They're very light, mobile, yeah. uh, parachuting into theater, mopping up the enemy and cruising out. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to met, you've got to value mobility. Um, you know, when you think about survivability and effectiveness, like protection and gear is part of it, but part of it's mobility that's really key. I mean, especially like in these wars where you've got our guys all turtled up with all this gear and they can't move and they're fighting people skipping around on the mountaintops above them in pajamas and sandals. Yeah. It's a huge, it's a huge <laughs> you know, problem. Yeah, in Iraq, we also got very used to being able to drive around vehicles yep. and you move 100 meters to target and then, you know, yeah. back to the vehicles. Um, you know, guys in Afghanistan haven't always had that luxury. Very different. Very different. Yeah. yeah. So how far off do you think we really are um, to having autonomous androids that can do our door breaching for us, our room clearing for us, when the operator the, is such a, uh, a glorified position today, you know, the pinnacle of the alpha male in America, when is the operator going to get replaced? Will it happen? So... So I think, you know, one of the ways that people think about it sometimes is they'll say, you know, a robot could never do my job. And I find that no matter who you talk to in the military, everybody thinks that, right? Everybody's like, oh, my job's so important. And, and the answer is probably yes. A robot could never do everything that a human does. But that, that's not, that shouldn't be the standard, right? The question is, could we use robots to do some of the things better? Right. Right? So, you know, could we build, like, this Android robot that's going to do everything a human does? No, no, no. Right? Like uh, like Michael in, in uh, Prometheus. Yeah, that's that the guy's be, name. Yeah, uh, that that fast manner plays. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. the. I don't remember the. Something, but it, he's almost like a human being. Right, he can do all like, the things you would expect a human to do. That's that's like that's like light years away, right? That's yeah. for well, light years a unit of distance. I should mm-hmm. say, but it's like it's decades away at best, right? Maybe centuries. That's really hard to do. Um, but could we be using robots so that the first thing in the door is not an operator catching bullets? 
Yeah. Right? We can imagine a robot being able to batter down a door, right? You can use a robot to batter down a door, and then once you breach the door, right, why don't I send in a quadcopter with a flashbang on it? Now, that's smart. Could we send in a swarm of quadcopters into a building to completely map it autonomously, to find all the people inside it, use facial recognition, link that up to a broader you know, network that we have of intel to identify all these people in their relationships, identify all of the objects, say, here's all the weapons that we're carrying, and then the person's like, yep, that's the guy we're going after. Frag the room. I would say the fear cool. is, though, we're not always going to be at war with these countries so far behind in technology that if we have this technology... Russia, China, they're going to have the same type of technology to use on us. They are. Yeah. And we're going to, I mean, we're already seeing with the Islamic State, they're using drones against, you know, against us and, and our allies uh, in Iraq and Syria. So we've got to be thinking about countermeasures to these things, too. Absolutely. But as much as, uh, as cheesy as I thought this movie was. Um, Don't it, say Terminator 2. because No, no, not, not, not Terminator 2. <laughs> we all love uh, Arnold and, and Terminator 2. And, and uh, um, Sarah Connor, one of our all-time favorites. But... <laughs> Uh, the new the RoboCop remake. Yes, and Sam Sam Jackson in the beginning of the movie, he makes this point that I thought was really important. He he's saying we have these amazing um, drone technologies and android technologies that we're using to fight counterinsurgencies abroad, but back home we have crime in our, our streets. Our police officers gunned down and killed. Why can't we use this amazing technology yeah, here at yeah, home? Yeah. So we've seen a little bits of this, right? There was an incident um, last year, two years ago, where the police had used this uh, this robot and put a bomb on it to blow up the guy. the R two murder bot. Yeah, right? we wrote and an article about, about it. I thought it was awesome. So I mean, I think look, <laughs> one of the one of the things that robots can do that's really beneficial is give greater standoff from threats. Mm-hmm. Um, we put a lot of people in harm's way, whether it's police officers or or troops in combat, um, where they have to make these split-second decisions and they're in an ambiguous situation. This, like, shoot-no-shoot situation. Maybe it's a police officer, somebody's fishing around in their their pocket for something and maybe it's a gun, maybe it's not. Maybe you've got some soldier standing at a checkpoint and a vehicle's approaching or a person and they're like, all right, is this a threat? Do I have to shoot? Robots can give you greater standoff. So you could have a situation where you have a robot there and the human's still in control, Okay, humans making all the decision making, but now the human can say, you know what, I'm going to be a little bit more cautious. Let him shoot the robot. Let him take the first shot. You know what I mean? That's what I brought up to you earlier. We kind of use canines that way now. I mean, a lot of people don't like to hear it, but you put the dog in the in the house first. Yeah, and maybe the dog gets shot. Hopefully not, but. Yeah, and so like that, that kind of stuff's a great job for a robot. I mean, in some ways, the, the SOCOM Talos project, which I'm a supporter of, I think we should be doing actually more on exoskeletons. I think that there are... Um, the technology's not, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it's not going to happen at all if we don't invest in it. And there is a potential there, right? But the Talos project is sort of the embodiment of one of the problems of this, which is we have this problem of we have operators running into the fatal funnel, getting shot. And so we're like, we're going to put them in this Iron Man suit. Okay, that's great. Let's work on that. But why don't we just send like robots in first? Send a quadcopter in. We can totally do that today and let the robot catch the bullets. What, what do you feel about that these technologies, these military technologies could potentially be used here in the United States. Uh, that I can very quickly, like I, I mentioned to you before, it sounds like Minority Report, yeah. where they come yeah. and they, sh- they send the robots into the apartment complex looking for Tom Cruise, and they're scanning everybody's eyeballs. I mean, it sounds like some Panopticon-type technology, yeah. a surveillance yeah. state like it you is. see in China. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, look, there's a lot of a lot of greater concerns when you start applying this stuff domestically, um, particularly when it comes to, to surveillance, surveillance and some of those kind of issues that come up. I mean, it's it's weird in the sense that we get really fixated on the physical aspect of these things. Um, we, there's a lot of fear surrounding drones in the U.S., and people are worried about, you know, somebody buys a drone and they're flying in their backyard and their neighbor's spying on them. Well, we live in this world where you go to a major city in the U.S. and they got cameras everywhere yeah. recording everything. People don't talk about that. We didn't have a debate as a society about that. We just like, boom, cameras went up post 9-11. And then, and then after the Boston bombing, when we use those cameras to find people, like that just sealed the deal, right? Now it's like these cameras are effective. We're going to use them. Um, we live in a world where people freely give up all of their personal data to tech companies. Yeah. yeah. Right? And we don't, I mean, like, and then afterwards, when you get stuff like Cambridge Analytica, people are like, oh, what is tech companies doing? Like, you didn't know that they were collecting all your data? Yeah, like, Facebook, now with the facial recognition and all that, they're doing the same, same type well, of thing. One, right. one thing I bring up to people um, in a military context, and some people tend to, I, I get some really angry reactions when I say this, is that we still, the, the military, the special operations community, largely still operates as if it's like 1965, thinking that we're going to be able to infiltrate like an ODA into an austere environment and it's going to go unnoticed, that it'll be able to operate in a clandestine manner. I I mean, I've been in some total third world countries, I know you have as well, where every dude has a phone in their pocket that has a camera on it and more than likely it's a smartphone that they can upload pictures and video on. So the notion that we're going to be able to send, you know, white dudes like me and multicam to a country, they're going to operate in a clandestine manner. That's all out the window. I mean, you can't assume any of that anymore. It's not like in 1950, you could send a a special forces team to the Congo and it would be pretty nondescript. You'd probably never hear about it, you know? No, I don't think that we have really fully adapted to this world of radical transparency that we're already living in. Um, I mean, look, the Bin Laden raid was reported on Twitter. Yeah. Now, they didn't know what was happening, but... But they like, knew there's, there's weird helicopters there's up There's something above. going on. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, that's several years ago. So as you start to fast forward that where everybody's got a smartphone, everybody's reporting things, how do we adapt to a world where the location and disposition of our forces and their actions are going to be reported in real time to everyone? Yeah. And not everybody who's reporting this is necessarily the enemy. They might just be locals. They might be concerned citizens. So... How do we just adapt some to kid that? on the street like whoa, look, Americans are here, right? Like maybe, maybe, maybe he like thinks it's cool. Maybe he's yeah. supportive of us, but then boom, like you're blown, right? Mm-hmm. So I think like there are things in in terms of adapting our operations that we need to do. There are also things in terms of opsec, like we still put name tapes on people. Okay, not in the soft community, but like in big army, that's insane. That's insane that we do that, particularly when you think about all the information on social media, yes. about people's families and things. We have not. It's a huge force protection problem. We have not grappled with that at all. I mean, no. people talk about that kind of stuff, but you can use off-the-shelf facial recognition technology, and I mean, you start popping people very, very right. quickly. Well, and then you've got situations like this, this Strava uh, stuff that came up recently. The heat maps with all the with all the running the, the Fitbit the Fitbit yeah, stuff the Fitbit, right yeah and so so some of it's also ourselves that we got all these we exposed to our, we exposed all these bases overseas well that's what I was saying earlier you're yeah. I, I think there's there's people out there who grew up with this technology and don't really think twice about it you know they're not bad people it's just no. the, the, it's like a, the, the you're so attached to that technology it's yeah. so embedded in part of your lifestyle that you really don't think twice about it 
And I think, I think we've got to really adapt to that, both thinking about, you know, what happens when other people can go to, to Internet and they can find these maps of our bases and they can tell in real time where we are and how many of us there are. But also, like, what happens in a world where every interaction that a U.S. soldier has with locals is recorded? Right. That's a very different kind of world. And we're seeing you know, police in America deal with the sea change in the past couple of years where now you've got video recordings of all these interactions. Yeah. And you get, you get like these, sort of these big debates about the use of force and policing. Um, we need to be prepared for that to happen. I mean, where, you know, what every time some dumb, some Joe does something kind of silly and, and it maybe is rude to somebody, that goes viral. And I don't think that we're prepared for the training that we need to give our people to be ready for that. Right. Every time a Joe gets into a fight in a McDonald's or something like that. Or well, or stup- is rude to some local, you know, points his weapon at some, you know, some, some old lady on a street corner. And in the past, those incidents happened, but they were isolated. And or maybe, maybe that village was pissed off or that family, but it didn't go viral across the yeah, whole Yeah, and country. it goes viral, then, it, then it's seen as being emblematic of the entire American yeah. military operation. And good news doesn't typically go viral. No, no, it never does. Yeah. <laughs> hey, somebody's pan, you know, passing out you know, bags Soccer of balls, rice. Yeah. That doesn't go viral. Here's no. a young infantryman like, picking lilacs for the locals and yeah. giving them the children. Yeah, yeah it's probably not going to go viral. You, you know, we've talked about this on the show, and I feel like you'd be a good person to, to answer this, really. We've talked about the stuff going on with gun control and the whole issue right now. And I feel like when you turn on mainstream media, no one even brings up the issue of 3D printers, which you mentioned oh, before. Yeah. And I almost feel like this debate is going to become obsolete when the guy, you know, across the street from you could Can print out whatever weapon print you want. Print out an AK-47 in his basement. Yeah, like, so the FBI, like, when this first came out, the FBI put out these regulations that you can't 3D print things. And it's like, we're fighting against a tsunami of technology. Yeah, fighting the um, and right now, there are some limitations in terms of if you're printing, you know, 3D printing something that's plastic, it's not going to have the same reliability, but people are working on that. It's getting better. You can 3D print metal stuff, too. Yeah, um, I have a friend who works in aerospace, and at work, he said they have this huge 3D metal, metal printer, and they print parts for rockets that we send into wow. space. Yeah. He's like, you program it in, you go home, you come back in the morning, and you pull it out of the three, a metal part for a rocket. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge challenge, right? And so, um, yeah, it, you know, when you can print off um, parts or entire firearms, that's um, going to make things like um, not only adding new gun control measures if people wanted to do that, but even, you know, enforcing things that are in place today about, say, automatic weapons, very, very challenging. The new anarchist cookbook is going to be like, what is it, an STL file for your 3D printer? Yeah, it's just, you just download like, the files, right? <laughs> I'm going on the dark net, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I would think so, Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear some some stories of you guys serving together. There's got to be some stuff there. We haven't oh, gotten any of that. <laughs> I don't know. Where do you want to go, Jack? I don't know, man. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is uh, actually going to be in my book that I've been writing. I, I shot some of that over to Paul, yeah. actually. I, I, sent, I sent excerpts of the book out to different um, people I worked with just to see, like, how, how close am I to, you know, am I re- recalling all this the right way? But um, so I don't want to spoil Jack's book. I tell a story that's um, that I think is interesting and relevant to the topic. That's it's in the book, um, Army of None. It's so, not a it's a Jack story in the book or no? No, it's not a Jack story. <laughs> okay, it's not a Jack story. It's a it's a, it's a story from our sniper team. Yeah, um, but Jack wasn't, oh, wasn't cool. there. Um, Jack would know all the other players there. So this was pretty um, pretty early in the wars in Afghanistan, and we were sent to um, to do an overlook up on the AFPAC border. 
the idea was that we were supposed to watch sort of infiltration rounds. This is fairly early where I think people didn't fully realize just how totally porous the border is. Like the idea that you're going to put tiny OPs all on the border watching everything. Like, yeah, it's laughable, right? Well, like, this is kind of early on, and people were like, well, we're just going to go. Like, the BCPs, gonna, and yeah. Right, like, we're going to figure out where they're coming from. And it's like, they're coming from everywhere, right? Okay, so so we go up there. We infiltrate this height. This was actually the time that we carried 160 pounds up this mountain. This is crazy, right? Like, we're not ants. You can't do that kind of thing. Um, so we infill at night. And, uh, and the sun comes up, and instantly we're, we're compromised. And we can see this, this farmer comes out of his mud hut, and he comes out to, like, take a leak in the field, but, you know. And he looks up, and he sees us. There's, like, eight of us behind this, like, rock, right? And, like, there's no cover. It's Eastern Afghanistan. There's no trees or anything where we are. We're the tree line. And our heads are all like this, like, looking out. Right? <laughs> and uh, he's, you can see him kind of, like, and he kind of scurries back in. So um, about an hour later, a little girl comes along. And uh, she's got two goats in tow, like she's herding, herding goats. But it's probably clear she's been sent out to, to recon our position. And, um, and she walks kind of, she comes up along the mountain, and she walks kind of this long arc around. She's about five or six. She's not very sneaky, to be perfectly honest with you. She's like staring at us, you know, not like very stealthy kind of recon. And, um, and then we hear this kind of beeping that we, re- we later realize is, a, is an icon, this radio that she's got, right, that she's reporting back. So we watch her, and she watches us. Eventually she leaves. And a couple minutes later, some Taliban fighters come along. So we, we take care of them, and, uh, and then the firefight that happens ends up basically, like, it echoes across the valley, and, and like, the whole village kind of comes out. Whitey's here. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was like, hey, something's happening. You know, there's nothing in Afghanistan to draw people out like a, like a gunfight. You know, people love, love fighting there. So, so very quickly after the gunfight, we realize, like, a uh, village is massing on our position. We're going to have to have to exfil. So we exfil. And we're talking later about what would we do in that kind of situation? Because it's very early, and we're still sort of coming to grips with the fact that um, up in these mountains in Afghanistan, I found it doesn't matter where you go, there's civilians everywhere. Like, yeah. you can be up at mountains at 10,000 feet, and we run across some guy herding goats. You can be in, like, a totally remote location, and there's still, like, lean-tos, and you'll find, like, footprints yeah. in the sand. Yeah. Right. Some guy out there chopping wood, like, middle of nowhere, right? Up on top of mountains. So one of the things we talked about is like, all right, you know, if we saw somebody and we're a civilian, maybe we'll like kind of try to apprehend them, pat them down, see if they got a radio, figure out if we're like, we're compromised now or we might be compromised when they come back. Like, how do we deal with kind of this problem? So something that never came up is that we're like, oh, we should just shoot this girl. That wasn't a topic of a conversation. Okay. And I'm not going to say that there aren't difficult situations that people are placed to in war, but this was not one. This was like an easy one. Like, let the girl go. We'll deal with whatever comes afterwards. Um, you know, frankly, you know, we, we were probably itching for a fight. So, like, oh, girl leaves. <laughs> you know, a bunch of guys come after us. We're like, win, right? Like, yeah, you're like, go over to her. Like, hey, hey, go, go tell your homeboys to come over yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> like, send, send more, send more. So, so you know, we weren't that brokenhearted about it. So, um, so what's interesting, though, is when you think about automation and, and, uh, and robots is legally she's a combatant. She is participating in hostilities. And she's, she's a part of the, the enemy. She's a part of the weapon system. She's, right? She's scouting for the enemy. There's no age set under the laws of war for combatants. It doesn't matter how young you are. If you're participating in hostilities, you're, you're a lawful combatant. It's like that uh, you know, gothic serpent scenario where they're in Mangadishu and the fighters are hiding behind the women or you have kids running ammunition across the street to the right. fighters. Yeah, Kids are running ammunition. Now, look, if, if you run across a civilian and it's just like a legitimate goat herder, right? And they're like, hey, man, I just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You shoot that person as a war crime, okay? But, but here you got, like, kids running ammunition. Like, they're, they're an active participant. 
So if you programmed a robot to follow the laws of war to yeah. the letter, it'd shoot this little girl. Um, and so it's one of the things to talk about in the book is like, how do you think about the role of human judgment? Think about values and, and ethics in these kind of And situations. it's interesting, too, because the enemy was taking advantage of your perceived system of values. That's right. That they think, well, they're probably not going to shoot this girl. But if they do, oh, well, whatever. I mean, it shows you the value they, they had on her life, right. which is basically none at all. They were willing to take that, you know, roll the dice with her life. Right. Yeah. Um, right. But they're taking advantage of your perceived American values. They're like, ah, she pro- they probably won't shoot her. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that, uh, that people sort of grapple with with this idea of more automation is, you know, what happens when you have automation that doesn't have this level of sort of the human moral engagement with what's happening? That's right. cool that your Human book empathy. that your book goes into these stories of you know your own experience because although it's obviously not a memoir and you know I know you're putting out a memoir but that's like the popular thing right now is operators putting out memoirs this is completely different Paul's too still- ed- Paul's too educated for that <laughs> I missed that class apparently there's some class that they give everybody when they go through soft training these days on like how to write a memoir it took me like it must have come after my time it took me like eight <laughs> years to learn before I finally broke down and, and did it but nonetheless but, I mean Army of None is still a book that that talks about your experiences as an operator and then into doing what you're doing now which I think is pretty cool I do want to ask Paul since we got him here and this is a little since we are soft rep radio yeah Paul was one of the first guys who stood up the recce teams for Ranger Battalion. Uh-huh. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that, about why these, because we had the Ranger Reconnaissance Detachment, of course, RRD, that did recon for uh, the Ranger Regiment for a long time. I, I wrote an article about them, kind of a history article about yeah, those guys. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, but then each battalion got its own recce team, which you were, I think, 375 was the first battalion that, that stood up recce teams. I think we were later than that. Like, I was just, you know, I was just a, a sergeant at the time. So, so you're a little bit in the dark about what the battalion was doing. My recollection was that we were the last, actually. Oh, the, really? Okay. The other battalions had moved quicker, and then for whatever reason, the 375 leadership had been dragging their heels. Maybe because we were next door to RRD and yeah, they thought that they could yeah. rely on them. I don't know. That's all, that all political. Yeah, yeah. That's like, that's like that what the colonels are doing is like, you know, off in the clouds. Yeah, I, I, was a, I was a tab spec four at the time, so yeah. I didn't know about all that. But anyway, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about standing up the recce teams, what your job was, what you guys were up to. That was honestly, that was the most fun I ever had. That was just a blast. <laughs> so, so the basic, I mean, the basic gist of it is what you're describing, which is this is fairly early in the war, so like 2003, 2004 timeframe, yeah. um, where... You know, RRD had been doing uh, work for the battalions, doing doing recon stuff for years, and then once the wars really kicked off, they got they got so there was so much work to be done right. that they just got sucked up and they were doing other things, right? And so the the idea was we're going to create battalion level detachments. Now at the time, they had uh, in all the range battalions they had sniper detachments, and so there's basically like expanding that platoon to add a couple recce detachments that would go alongside them um, that would do recon work. And so when we stood it up, they basically they, they poached a couple people from the sniper teams to help stand them up. I was one of them um, that moved from the sniper section over to the recon teams and then grabbed some other people from across the unit. And um, it was a blast. We were, um, 
you know, we had some folks do, and obviously work in Iraq. I was at the time in Afghanistan and those deployments. The guys in Iraq weren't having that much fun, though. I don't think like you were. Well, you know, at the time it was it was to be honest with you, it was actually a really permissive environment in Afghanistan. Yeah. Right. This was like 2004, 2005 time frame. And you could get away with a lot of stuff that we were doing. It was just wild. Right? We were doing a lot of little visibility work and um, and aerial recce's. We were doing some tactical stuff on foot. Um, and it was just, it was really a lot of like close target reconnaissance work. It was a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoyed it. And this it. was all like new for Ranger Battalion too. All very new. It was all very new. It was, uh, it was three, seven, fives first, you know, we were standing up recce teams. When we deployed, Paul and I, we had like beards and long hair. Like all of this was totally like outside the, like mind blowing. Oh, for Ranger hated Battalion. Us. Yeah. You know I mean? It was like just blowing. It was just so, it was so mind blowing inside the Ranger Battalion was, that was when they'd started shifting to more low visibility work. So that the sniper and recce teams had, they said, well, we can start, you could do long hair operations and grow beards and stuff. And oh my God. I mean, you think that we were the Antichrist. Yeah. I mean, people <laughs> were so upset. I mean, they had actually, the Rangers had just moved like a year before that away from high end tights. Yeah. So the idea that you could even have like army standard hair was still controversial inside Ranger it, it, This was like sacrilege. Oh, I mean, yeah. people just, people were so, people just hated our guts for Wearing it. civilians around battalion all day. Oh, yeah. yeah they, Who do you think you are? And, you know, it's like, whatever. So it's just, it was part of the job. There were times when that was important and you needed it. And um, you, you guys, you know, uh, were disguising yourselves as Afghanis a lot of times. We did. We did stuff in, um, um, obviously, civilian uh, kind of clothing. We did stuff in... Um, you know, blending in with other Afghan forces, if we might integrate with them, like wearing those uniforms. Um, you know, obviously, there's limits to how close you could get to people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the idea that I'm going to, like, put on a, a set of pajamas and walk to a market. I mean, your team were all Caucasians, one African-American. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, you weren't going to blend in as Afghani. Yeah, I mean, know. I think at the time, you know, if I, if I was, like, well tanned and kind of dirty from a distance. I probably look yeah, like, a, yeah, like yeah. a kind of an overfed Afghan. Yeah, but um, but you're not going to blend in up close. And obviously, people don't speak the language and stuff. So you're not you're not doing those kind of operations. But but from a distance, you could at least um, create some kind of ambiguity. Um, I did I did know you know um, folks who who you know at least up in tactical operations up in the mountains had been like face to face with Afghans who didn't know that they were Americans. Oh really? Now, they could tell that they weren't Afghan, but they assumed that they were like Arab fighters, Tajiki or fighters, or something. yeah, because there's yeah. foreign fighters from all over the place. And so if you weren't in uniform, people people didn't know who you were. That's that's pretty cool. So uh, yeah. actually, up on top of them. Yeah, I knew a guy that got hugged by an Afghan, and then like, uh, and when he hugged him, realized that he had like a like an AK buried underneath his that the American was carrying a weapon underneath his robes and was like. <laughs> yeah. I think he assumed he was probably like he was like a foreign fighter. It was an interesting time in Ranger Battalion because you, we were getting into all of that. Um, it was the first time I think we started making any approaches into like Tekken things yes. like that. Yes, um, all kinds of different stuff that we were kind of like like. It was interesting because these were all things that was perceived that like JSOC guys would do in the past, and it was like Ranger, you are not high speed at all to be able to <laughs> attempt something like this. But now things were changing because of the war. Well, part of it was just, you know, there was this sort of this waterfall effect of, I think, I think Rumsfeld actually at the time had described this as, as sort of a step to the right, that he wanted um, JSOC, to, Tier 1 units, to be doing things that look more like what the CIA had been doing, um, um, other soft units doing things more like what JSOC had been yeah. doing, and kind of so forth and so on. Convention units being more kind of like regular kind of soft. And everyone kind of took a step up. And that, and that happened, you know, sort of down the line where people would say, okay, look, we need to, because there was just so much work to be done. You know, so much work that was out there, people would say, all right, we need to start um, doing more more interesting operations, adapting our tactics. And, and also, and I, I, I always uh, 
you know, get a laugh out of this. People tell me, well, Rangers don't do FID. And I was like, oh, let me tell you a story about (laughs) Afghanistan, my friend. And and, uh, we actually, the both of us and and your team, we were training the Afghan SWAT unit. Yeah, it was a local SWAT unit. Once a week or, yeah, I think once a week. In Kaos, yeah, we trained them. And, like, you know, again, like, you you sort of do what the mission requires. So we did... um, we did a lot of things that, you know, that's not that's not maybe the core competency of a ranger unit. It's not, you don't create a ranger battalion to do FID, right? But um, like a lot of people in that in that world, people are going to do um, do what jobs they need to. So we did we did some FID. You know, we did it, some I mean, with them. it was the environment we found ourselves in, you yeah. know. And I liked working with you guys because you were flexible like that. And it was like all kinds of different things. All these different doors were open. We were trying a lot of new things. And it was we were breaking a lot of eggs at the time. You know, the funny thing is, other than the haircuts, which was, <laughs> which was like sacrilege, the other hardest thing we had to do was... We were trying to change tactics. So here we created these small recon teams. You got like an eight-man recon team. And, you know, you're operating very, very differently than a regular line infantry unit would. Um, you've got different, different MTO, different equipment than a squad would have. I mean, similar types of gear, but not necessarily exactly the same. Um, you know, we would have things like maybe an Air Force JTAC along with or an ETAC. So we've got, you know, big radio we could call in airstrikes. Um, you're not going to have a heavy machine gun team along with. Um, but also, you don't have a full platoon in a company backing you. And so, you know, just little things like we do, you know, um, movement to contact drills and your battle drills. And one of the things we started doing is we started cracking open old books and saying, okay, like, well, what do, you know, what do LERP units do? Yeah. Right? What are their kind of kind of um, react to contact drills? And how do they adapt? And we had at the time... Um, uh, a senior sergeant who ran the teams, uh, the recon team in Third Range Battalion, who had done a lot of like lerped kind of unit uh, work in other units. Who was really good, really skilled. A, a gunny, you may remember, right? So, so we had people who, who, who had this. But when we started doing that kind of training, it really, it really. Um, upset a lot of people in battalion because they were like, well, you're changing the tactics, you know, and who are you to, to change up how we do these battle drills? And so it was really upsetting to like the kind of the senior NCO leadership of the first sergeant and the sergeant and major. We, we were attached to Charlie Company at the time. Doc Jenkins, Leo Jenkins was there. Who will be here soon. And um, he, w- he was with Charlie Company at the time. And uh, I, I even remember sitting in AARs and they were upset that you guys had action to targets at times. They're like, well, that's our job. Why, why are those guys doing that? Yeah. But I think yeah. it all worked out very well at the end of the day because, you know, you guys were training the the Cal SWAT team. You ended up going out with those guys on raids and you locked down the perimeter. So there's that relationship between you and them. The Charlie companies could, got, could go in uh, and uh, strike targets. Yeah, they used this in a lot of ways. I mean, one of the things that we were doing embedded into sort of like um, – um, Raids, right? Would be doing recon ahead of time, so we could provide the the raiders with a sort of a, a target package to say, look, because sometimes you know, as people know, doing this, you end up you do this raid and then you hit the wrong building, right? So we do things like you know, go do uh, recon ahead of time, so we could come back and, and present to people a full package of information. Say, look, here's the compound you're going after. Here's the neighboring compound. There's an alleyway between it. Here's where you might want to think about moving up. Here's the doorway. Here's what it looks like. You know, it's got a red door or whatever. Like that's that was really valuable. And of course, we'd all been on the line units doing raids in prior deployments, so we kind of knew what those guys were looking for, so we could give valuable in- information there. And then we do things like go in ahead of time and then actually um, provide like early eyes on. 
So, go, so sometimes we'd go in and we'd, we'd lead the assault force in, and then we'd have just a very small number of guys like put eyes on while the assaulters were infiltrating, um, which was always very exciting because you were really kind of like hanging out there on your own. It'd be like you and one other dude, and you're kind of like covering down the side of the building, and you're like, let's hope that they don't hear us because yeah. it's, it's going to get pretty hairy pretty quick. It was, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting time. And, uh, and the battalion recce teams, they went on over the years to do some really great work. I mean, they ended up doing, you know, vehicle interdictions and kidnappings, you know, quote unquote. Uh, they went, went on, did some really cool stuff. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I mean, I'm glad that I was, you know, really part of a foundation to get that kind of stuff going. Um, before we get to some questions, if there's any from the yeah, listeners. Yeah, I see, I see a few. A lot of people are just enjoying the discussion, I wanted, really, which is great. I want, <laughs> this top, the, the beard topic I have to go back to because there's some <laughs> funny stuff going on there. We had There's one guy. I can't remember which team he was on. Good dude, but all he grew was like a little peach fuzz yeah, on yeah, his Yeah, he couldn't grow the beard. And a little bit <laughs> here. And what he did is he went to go get uh, beard dye to dye because it was all blonde. So he went to go dye his chin pubes, and he got the uh, he got jet black dye. That's for brothers. It's for black guys to dye their afro. Yeah. And so it's like he was he was he was he was like Swedish. This dude, okay, he's an American, but like Nordic descent. And he had this like jet black chin pubes. It looked ridiculous. It was funny. So like, it wasn't Marty Scovlin, was it? No, no, no. no. <laughs> you start to grow them out, right? And some people can grow like a really nice beard, and some people they just don't have it. this patchy or they get. I had so the he'd jer- be the opposite because he's uh you know from that origin, but he can grow a pretty I, damn full beard. I had the so. Jeremiah Johnson beard. Yeah, yeah, you can go pretty good. But like I said, there's these are weird patches or something, you know, weird colors. We had one guy just could, couldn't grow any. He didn't have any fish, he just had a little patch. And he kept saying, he was like, I'm Chilean. Apparently his heritage was Chilean. Yes, yeah, and, him too. And he was really upset about it. He's like, you know, it's not... It's not, you know, it's not because because it's kind of a sign of manhood. You're like, oh, what's wrong? You can't grow a beard. So he had gone out before deployment and he bought a fake beard kit. This is awesome. Right? Like bought, a Hollywood fake beard. Like a Hollywood makeup kit, right? Because he was like, man, if we got to go, if that's a thing, we got to go undercover. Like, I'm not going to get left behind. He's like, I'm not sitting on the base because I don't have a beard. So he had this thing all worked up, you know? And he like put it on. He's like, what do you think? Does it look legit? We're like, no, dude, it looks like you're a fake beard. Like, yeah. he, he, looked, he looked like a pedophile in Central Park, like behind a a tree staring I mean, it just didn't look very legit now fair enough like if you had gotten close enough to notice like we're probably you're already wrong. in trouble yeah right I mean like you know you're supposed to be have some standoff or maybe you're in a but vehicle. I remember it had two parts there's the beard that goes over here with like and he had the like legit like Hollywood makeup glue. effects yeah. glue to oh, put yeah. it on and then there's the mustache that went on over that I mean but it looked like a dude wearing a fake beard yeah, oh, yeah, silly. Yeah. but he was like hey man if we gotta do it like I'm putting this thing on I'm like alright alright you, know, yeah. you might get left behind he was a good dude I but liked the, him the other funny thing was for the Afghans it's such a big thing in Afghan culture that they had this perception that whoever had the longer beard was the guy in charge, <laughs> which was hilarious. <laughs> and her platoon sergeant at the time, you remember, right, could not grow a beard to save oh, his life. Oh, Randy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So he couldn't grow a beard to save his life. this patchy kind of goofy-looking beard. So the Afghans wouldn't believe that he was the boss. I had, I, was, I had a pretty sick beard, so they thought that I was in charge or the other team leader uh, who would also like a really cool beard, but they would not believe that he was the boss man, and they were like, no, 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 definitely not. Yeah, and if you don't have Hilarious. a beard, you're like the chai boy. Yeah, right? And so they yeah. like, you know, it was kind of a big deal. He was, he was actually, he was kind of sensitive about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I ran into him at a, a ranger meetup in Las Vegas like two years ago. Yeah, it's yeah. always good catching he's, up. He's doing good. Yeah. Good, good guy. Yeah. That's great. I'm glad we got into that story. Um, so 
we're, we're getting a lot of people just enjoying the discussion. I mean, if you have any questions, shoot them over. It's funny. The other question Mike Godspeed asked was, where the fuck is Brandon Webb? Which is a nice plug for Brandon's podcast. So Brandon is doing the Power of Thought podcast every week. If you look up the Power of Thought, uh, soft rep as of, you know, currently has just been Jack Murphy and myself and whoever else we get in here. Um, and we should get Brandon on an episode soon. We've, yeah. we've talked about that before. But his other question is, when does the AI say no to a command because it doesn't fit the overall battle plan? Mm. I think that's a good question. Do you want systems like that? They're going to say no. Um, that could overrule somebody. That's one of kind of the debates is do you want to put um, – mostly this comes up in the context of legal issues, right? Do, would you want a system that somebody's about to commit a war crime and things like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm – I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. I'm not going to open the, the pod bay doors for you. Um, and that's, I think, a legitimate kind of question, a legitimate concern going forward. You know, I think one of the things that comes up is like, who do you, where do you want to rest control? Who's controlling the system? Whose job is it? Is it the programmer ahead of time? Is it the operator who uses it? One of the things I dig into in the book is I do like a sort of a case study of um, the Army's use of the Patriot air defense system, particularly in 2003, that led to these fratricides. And they've adapted their, their doctrine since then, but at least at the time. And how the Navy uses the Aegis combat system on their ships, which is basically as like, a full auto mode um, that allows them to shoot down any incoming rockets or missiles that are going to overwhelm the ship. Um, if it's like wartime and they're, they're under threat, they can just flip this thing on. It's going to shoot down incoming things. So they're built by the same company, same defense contractor, basically the same concept, same technology, same mission set, but they're used very differently. And for the Army, the Patriot is basically, at least at the time, it's used in a way to, um, to what I would describe it as replace human judgment and decision making. So they, they embed all this programming into the machine, and then the operator has a very, just a couple different modes to turn this thing on. It's kind of like semi-auto and full auto, Okay. <laughs> Um, and that's it. That's what they decide. And it's based on either aircraft or missiles. And that's all the choices they get. Safe, semi, lots of fun. Yeah. Like the, so, so in the Navy, it's almost infinitely customizable. They write these doct- what they call doctrine statements. They're like programming lines. Um, and they, they start planning six months before deployment. They look at the mission. They look at the environment they're going to. They look at threat information. And they map out all these different doctrine statements to say, okay, you know, if there's a, a, an incoming a radar hit at this speed, at this altitude coming from this direction, it's going to be semi-auto. If it's from this, you know, this altitude, it's going to be full auto. And they kind of map all this stuff out. And then they can upload all of these things individually one at a time or, like, group them into, into bundles and upload them very quickly. But in that case, the automation is used to embody the judgment of the military commander. And, and for the Navy, it's the ship commander. He, he, he or she ultimately has all of the authority. Um, and so I think one of the questions is, like, do we want to use automation to replace humans or to carry out human judgment for the warfighter. And that's a very different kind of design philosophy. I think that's a, that's a great answer to that. Um, wrapping things up here, I did, I did want to mention to you guys all watching and listening, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past I was items telling Paul earlier. About Crate Club, yeah. <laughs> it's Crate crazy. Club it's is, cool. is doing awesome. People are very happy with all the gear we've been sending out. Um, you know, we've had items in the past like a uh, EDC med kit that Benghazi survivor and fellow Army Ranger, I should say for you guys, uh, Chris Tonto Peranto put together a ballistic shield insert for your backpack 
made by Cry Precision. And this year, Scott Whitner, who I who might still be watching, is helping us put together a lot of custom products. So we have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. And gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just launched Kuna. We have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether you're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of this at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog, and that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. I saw the first um, box that we put together. We've ads out of that, and people are really loving them. So kuna.dog. Um, and then also the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. Our premiere show on there is Training Cell, which follows special operations forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. And you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel, and that's at specopschannel.com, and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership. So that's only $4.99 a month, um, and we have a new app coming. Well, the app is already available, I should say, if you have an iPhone. The I, For iOS, the Android is coming in June. So Sweet. check out the Spec Ops channel app. You can watch all that on your phone. Of course, I should mention what Paul is up to. That's why he's here. Army of None is available now. Army of None, Autonomous Weapons, and the Future of War. You could follow Paul on Twitter at Paul underscore Shari, which is Paul underscore S-C-H-A-R-R-E. Uh, your website is paulshari.com. Currently working um, for the Center for a New American Security. Any other stuff that you want to plug before you get out of here? Or? No, thanks for having me on the show. Are there any more questions for him? From uh... Uh, You know, it's a lot of people just liking what we're doing. Like, you know, <laughs> Ariel Cruz says, Beard Larius, uh, you know, um, excellent discussion from Michael Sable, uh, and just, you know, different stuff like that. Right. So I'm not seeing a lot of uh, questions. I mean, if you have any, shoot them over now because we're about to wrap this up. But um, I think we, we covered a lot of ground here. Yeah, really yeah. enjoyed it. I mean, this is pretty in-depth. You're probably used to, because I know you're in town doing media, yeah. you're probably yeah. used to doing these hits where you're trying to cover a very complex subject in, what, two to five minutes or so. Yeah, a lot of them are radio hits where it's like five minutes That's real tough. quick, on and off on the air. And this uh, is not a five-minute subject. No. <laughs> no, I mean, you wrote a book on it. And it's, uh, you know, so I, I can do the five-minute spiel, but it's always fun to talk more. It's um, And it's great to be able to talk to, to you guys and have talk to, like, an audience that understands a lot of these things and be able to get into some of more of the... The sort of the, the visceral reality, the military operations yeah. that that I try to talk about in the book. Yeah, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of our audience are you know the infantrymen that worked on the ground, or the radar operators, or the missile yeah. operator on the ship. You know, all those kind of guys who have some familiarity with this, and I think have the same questions you have. Where, where's all this going? Right, and that's one of the things I try to weave into, and in using some of the experiences that I had, and and um, and the experiences of others in interviews is kind of what's the what's the reality of what people are, are doing today, which has a lot of technology, has a lot of automation, but also has a lot of situations where humans are making tough calls. Um, humans are making whether it's you know. Um, 
people on the ground in wars like Iraq and Afghanistan, or you've got situations like U.S. fighter pilots over Syria, you know, button up against Russian fighter pilots, right? Making decisions that have huge strategic consequences. Um, you know, I think, I think what I find is interesting about this is sometimes I'll hear the technologists will say things like, hey, like humans are just pushing buttons anyways, right? They're just trusting all automation. And then when you talk to a lot of the military professionals, they'll be like, well, it's a little more, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, regardless of their job. So I try to convey that to you in the book. Do you think that escalation of force is going to change? Like, is war going to become easier if, you know, it's just one side deploying their robots against the other? Like, like if the, the, the Russia versus America dogfight over Syria, what if both of those plans were automated? Maybe at that point, are we just kind of like, ah, fuck it? And if, they, and if they blow each other up, do we even care? Like, is it that big a deal because they're robots? I mean, there's no question that at a small level that's true. So, so here's a real-world example that already happened. Um, you know, last year, maybe a year and a half ago now, uh, China snatched up a U.S. underwater drone in the yeah, South China Sea. I remember that. We just shrugged it off. Yeah. We like, just well, said, like, hey, okay. give us a drone back. And the Chinese were like, oh, our bad. We're, we didn't mean to. We didn't mean to. Here's it back. Now, imagine if they had, you know, captured, like, um, you know, a, a small Navy boat with sailors on board. Totally different situation. Like in Iran. Like in Iran or in the P3 incident years ago. Oh, in, in China. China. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's huge different level of diplomatic consequence. It's like when a drone gets shot down or, or just goes down in Pakistan or Afghanistan. That's right. That sucks. Probably got to go out there or, or do uh, drop a bomb on it to destroy it the rest of the way. Yep. But everyone kind of shrugs their shoulders like, yeah. Yeah. It's not war, man. Well, and we've seen this <laughs> repeatedly, actually, where as drones have been proliferating, countries have been... Um, Countries are much more liberal with willing to take risk with drones. They'll send them across, you know, the line. An international border, yeah. In ways that they totally wouldn't with um, with people on board. It would be considered an act of war if you, like, parachuted troops into an, an, another country. Right. It is It is certainly much more inflammatory when there's people involved. Yeah. We certainly saw this in, in Pakistan with the Pakistani reaction to dro- U.S. drone strikes, which is not really enthusiastic. But then you compare this to, you know, in the Bush administration, there were a couple on-the-ground raids into Pakistan, and, and the reaction was completely different, or the Bin Laden raid, right, completely different. Um, and, and but we've also seen that people will just shoot the enemy drones down. People just, people shoot them down, and they blow up the drone, and then nobody cares. They kind of shrug it off. So I think at like the small level, that's definitely reasonable to see we're already seeing that happen. Now, when you scale that up, could you imagine like a full-scale war that's just robots fighting robots and no one's killed? I don't think so, actually. Not think, anytime like, soon. Well, I also think that like, Ultimately, people will die because that's what's gonna that's what's gonna take for the war to end. Like it's gonna be pain and suffering to get someone to say enough. I quit. Right. Yeah, um, you have to pay a cost. Yeah, but but in the small scale, definitely, I think it's it, it's already changing escalatory dynamics. This was great. I think we covered so much, and and there's a lot more to be covered. So pick up the book, Army of None. Um, I wrote down in my sheet here, like there's so much going on between North Korea, South Korea meeting. Oh, um, actually, I want Paul. Why don't you plug your uh, your study too that you just did? Oh, on yeah. The, the Bop Since chart. we got mentioned this, all right. Yeah. So so we just released a study um, this week um, that came out of the army um, about the effect of blast pressure waves on the brain, and particularly from shoulder-fired heavy weapons. So um, anti-tank rockets like Carl Gustav, AT-4, Law. People who fire these things know that they pack quite a punch. Um, and, you know, I, I, we fire these things. Um, the Carl Gustav in particular cracks quite a, quite a punch when you, it feels like getting hit in the face when you shoot it. Um, there's new evidence that come, that's just come out very recently that we just released publicly this week from DOD studies 
that shows that even a very small number of shots from these things causes uh, cognitive deficits in memory and executive function for people firing them. Um, and, and so we just released a new report on this. Um, we're really interested in trying to get the word out to people who are using these. I think that, you know, people who are familiar with this have understood that if you massively exceed, that you shoot this, you know, two dozen rounds a day, you're not going to feel well. People know that. I think what is not fully understood is the potential long-term harmful effects on the brain and even the effects that happen from just a small number of shots, even within the approved limits that are out there that are standards. And we've talked to, particularly in the ranger community, those limits are violated um, pretty routinely. It's a significant problem. So we're trying to get the word out. Um, don't. Don't fuck up your melon with these things. Like, uh, um, one of the things we recommended is that the Army, you know, uh, change its firing limits and that commanders are really active in enforcing those limits to make sure that people aren't exceeding them and causing harm. And, and where could people find this? Um, so uh, there have been stories on uh, NPR and the Wall Street Journal. Our study is available on um, cnas.org. Uh, the project is called Super Soldiers. Um, so if you go, go so it's C-A-C-N-A-S dot org for right. Center for New American Security. And something you had mentioned to me, which was interesting, is you know, my first job in Ranger Battalion was a Carl Gustav gunner. Yeah. And we had the BOP chart, the blast overpressure chart. And the medics understood because I remember them describing it to me when I was a private. They're like, look, the reason why you look like you're drunk after you fire that thing is because it actually bruises your, like there's inflammation of the brain happening. And they understood that. But you told me the BOP chart was developed around protecting hearing loss, has nothing to do with TBI at all. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I, I would describe where we are as, um, as like where the NFL was 10 years ago, right, in trying to understand the effective hits on the brain. And we're really playing catch up because what, what happens um, from blast pressure is a different kind of mechanism than if you get hit in the head from a football injury, right? right? If, you, if that happens, you know, you smack your head against something, vehicle accident, you're playing contact sports, the brain sloshes around in the skull and mashes against your, the inside of your skull and causes bruising. Um, there's something different that happens when a pressure wave comes through the body. And we don't fully understand it, but it's a different kind of mechanism. But it definitely has some kind of effect on the brain. And, um, and just like in, in the NFL, like people have known that getting repeat concussion is not good for you. Now they're beginning to understand the, um, the fact that you can get degenerative conditions that worsen over time where you, you have you know, some initial brain injury and then maybe you stop getting hit, but it just spirals out of control. Uh, that's one concern. Another concern is, is repeat subconcussive events. So events where the person might actually report that they're fine. They don't even feel anything. They don't have a concussion. But we can measure cognitive, we can measure decreases in their cognitive performance following these things. Um, and so it suggests that, that, that the threshold for which we're protecting people needs to come down. And there's a lot of things that we thought were okay or recoverable that are not. Um, and we need to do a better job of protecting people. We also looked at things like better helmet designs. We've, there have been computer modeling to suggest that if you have a, a full face helmet, you can reduce the pressure wave coming into the head by 80%. Now, there's problems with that. It's like heavier, a football helmet. Like a football helmet, right? Or, or a, um, a motorcycle helmet. Like a motorcycle yeah. helmet, right? So it reduces visibility and other things. I mean, but maybe for training. Maybe for training, maybe for some duty positions. You know, Maybe if you're like the, the, the Carl Gustav gunner, maybe you should have a, a helmet, right? Um, so that's you know, some of the stuff that we're trying to, to get the word out there to say, um, um, respect the firing limits, we need to change the firing limits, install some, some procedures today. The other thing is we have this technology to measure all this. We have these blast gauges that people can wear that can measure the pressure 
that we receive so that we're recording it in a record. And we're not actually doing that right now. I'm sure VA doesn't really want you, or the Army doesn't want you doing that because the disability claims. So I'm not, look, I'm not saying that that's why the Army's doing it, but they don't have a program in place to do it. Yeah. And so the problem is right now, let's say you go to the range and you get exposed to all these things, and then years later, you know, you got all these symptoms. And since we released the report, we've had a lot of people come out on social media saying like, hey, I shot these things and I've got symptoms, you know. Sure. Um, and well, if you go to the VA and you have these things, they're going to say, well, where's your documentation? And we're not documenting this. So that's one of the things, too, that we say the Army needs to institute a program, a surveillance program, to start recording all this. Because mm-hmm. we've seen this before with Agent Orange, with Gulf War Syndrome, sure. with burn pits, where we're exposing people to these hazards, and then later on all these effects come, and then we're scrambling, we're playing catch-up. So de- or in denial. Or so totally in denial. CNAS.org, and what, the title of the study? Super Soldiers. So okay. if you Google CNAS, Super Soldiers, you should be able to find it, our work on uh, on this this issue of, of blast injury. Awesome. And, and as, as I was saying before, um, like I said, there's major issues we'll get into, I think, next episode. North Korea, South Korea meeting. That's the biggest news right now, I would say. Um, and then the Israeli Mossad operation, of finding the plans behind the Irani nuclear situation. Yeah. So uh, there's articles on the website about both of those subjects. Yes. So softrep.com, go pick up Army of None. I will hold it up here as we exit this broadcast. And pimp, thanks for coming in. Appreciate pimp, it. Pimp that Army book, of None, man. pick it up now. Cool. Appreciate it. Um, and we'll be back with another episode that'll go up on uh, Friday. Right on. Cool. Check it out, guys. Army of None, available now. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.